turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we will be looking at a large section this morning as we finish out this chapter, verses 57 through 80. The title of my sermon is Born to Be a Messenger. Our key words for our worshipers in training are messenger, John, and prophet. Now, the last time we were in the book of Luke, two weeks ago, we looked at the end of Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song of praise to the Lord, and we considered the power and the might of God. The power of God against his enemies and the love of God toward his people whom he makes to be a humble people, an obedient and faithful people. And so this morning, we're going to look at the birth of John the Baptist and the great prophecy of his father, Zechariah, who who presents Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God has promised in his covenants to his people. We have a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right in. Let's begin in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. So remember, we have Elizabeth who is in her old age. She is barren. She's been barren her entire life, and now she's giving birth to a child. No doubt this is a a big deal within the community. This is a big deal to their family. So at first, there's great surprise for everyone, and then we see rejoicing. Remember Gabriel's words in this regard as he is telling Zechariah of what is going to happen in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Speaking of John the Baptist, and that's exactly what we see here. Now, probably many people would have been at the house as As she had the child, they would have been helping to take care of things with Zacharias and Elizabeth. And and maybe those details kind of get lost in it all. But you have to think, it's difficult, particularly in the first century, to be an 80 or 90-year-old woman without being the mother of a newborn child. But now she has just given birth to a newborn baby and so most certainly needed the assistance of others. So they would have all been gathered around rejoicing at what has happened. And we read that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This was in order to fulfill the Mosaic law, the law given in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3. So John was circumcised as a sign of the covenant to signify his status as an Israelite. And Surrounding all of this, there would have been a celebration, a a party of sorts that would be very similar to what we would do for someone's birthday or for uh, maybe even larger for a wedding celebration. We we often travel to see family for special occasions. We go uh, we go great distances to celebrate with those we love and very much the same way this would have happened at the birth of John, and particularly at his circumcision. The family would have been present. The ceremony was to be performed by the father, who was Zechariah, the priest. 
And John's circumcision gave him the appropriate credentials. It made him to be uh, legally able to be the legitimate forerunner for the Messiah, to be a messenger of repentance that he was to be. It was very important that John and his family fulfilled what God had commanded, particularly in this regard. And so we see the birth of John, the rejoicing of the people, and the obedience of Zechariah and Elizabeth in circumcising John on the eighth day. We pick up again in verse second part of verse 59, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Literally, what this is saying is, all of the people of their community and all of their relatives were, were calling him or trying to call him Zacharias. It was simply assumed that was going to be his name. They thought they had a junior on their hands, as was the custom. The firstborn son would have typically taken on the name of his father, but Elizabeth responds with a forceful, No, he will be called John. Now, why was this so important? Why is it so important to Elizabeth and Zechariah? Well, very simply, because Gabriel told them that his name would be John. Remember when Zechariah was in the temple at the altar of incense and, and the angel Gabriel came to visit him, that Gabriel told uh, Zechariah all that his son would be, and in that he told him his name will be John, Zechariah, remember in his unbelief, he lost his ability to speak. And this passage seems to make clear that he also lost his ability to hear. You see, it says that the people were making signs to Zechariah. In other words, he wasn't able to hear what they were saying. They had to make signals to him to try and get him to understand what they were asking. What will be his name? He doubted God when the angel Gabriel delivered the message that his wife Elizabeth, who's been barren, would now be bearing a child. As a result, he was mute. He was deaf. And so there's no question whatsoever that Zechariah knew firsthand beyond any reasonable doubt that what he saw was real, that what he heard from the angel was real, and that it was certain that he needed to be obedient to the Lord in this matter. Remember verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So John was not a suggestion from the baby book. It was given by the Lord himself. His name will be John. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah respond in the same way. Look at verse 64. And immediately his mouth, this is Zechariah's mouth, was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. 
It's very important that we do justice to the situation here. It's easy to read and miss the overwhelming emotion that would have been present in this scene. It's just had to be an incredible, surreal experience for everyone who was there. Think about this. Their local priest had been mute and deaf for nine months. His wife had spent most of her time in, uh, in seclusion. And she's an elderly woman. The Bible even goes as far to say that she was as good as dead. And she's giving birth to a child for the first time in her life. It's amazing. Now they're both adamant about his name being John, and immediately Zechariah is able to speak again. Think about all of that. It's quite an experience for everyone involved. So Zechariah's original unbelief is replaced with faith. As we said, there's no doubt that he believed at this point, right? And it further increased his faith when Elizabeth finally conceived and certainly when she eventually gave birth. But notice the first thing that Zechariah does... The first thing he says is not something about his son whom he just had. It's nothing about himself. It's nothing about his ability after nine months to finally be able to speak again. But the first thing out of his mouth is praise to God. Think of it. Nine months. His wife is in his home. Mary was in his home most of the time. Constantly having to try and figure out people's hand motions as they're trying to explain something to him. I, I imagine people walking up to Zechariah, as we often do, when someone can't hear very well or not at all. Instead of writing something down, we just think we're going to scream it at them louder and maybe talk slower. That is especially funny to me when someone else speaks a different language than us. We think if we just enunciate and say it louder, they're going to understand what we're saying. So this situation was probably very frustrating in many ways to Zechariah. Your whole entire life, you have this ability to communicate with those in your household. He's a priest. He's before the people regularly. And then all of a sudden, almost an entire year, he goes without. But what a response as soon as he regains his speech and his hearing. He spoke, blessing God. There is no doubt that Zechariah foreshadows the God-glorifying ministry of his new son, John. Look at verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all this hill country of Judea. Now, the result of all of God's work is a reverent awe among the community. A fear of the Lord has settled upon all of them. They all recognize this is a work of God. This is divine. This is God's doing. And what did it do? It created a buzz about the community. They're having spiritual conversations, perhaps for the first time in a very long time. Remember, it had been over 400 years since they last heard from the Lord. No doubt if their hearts were anything like ours, they were beginning to wonder if they would ever see a work of God in their midst again. 
But then all of the sudden, all within the span of nine months, they see all of these wonderful, incredible, amazing things going on in their midst. They were surely a work of God. Zechariah's vision in the temple, his inability to talk as he came out of the temple, Mary coming to visit for an extended period of time from Nazareth, the birth of a child who she had been barren her entire life, and the fact that a boy had been predicted, a boy had been born, the manner in which all of this happened, and the insistence upon his name, the sudden loosening of Zechariah's tongue, his ability to hear, And then the sincere and enthusiastic manner in which he praises God. It's all very wonderful. It was all being spoken of among the people of the community. And so Luke concludes this section, this telling of the birth of John the Baptist in verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, heard all of these things that were happening, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. They had laid this up in their hearts. In other words, they were pondering, they were thinking on, they were reflecting on these wonderful things that had happened. Now, we have a, we have a hard time maybe imagining what this is like. In our, in our day... The news of something like this would have been posted on Facebook. It would have been shared a thousand times. Uh, someone would have made a YouTube video to talk about it. It would have been viewed a, a million and a half times in 24 hours. And within three days, it would have been buried and gone, never to be remembered again. Spiritual reflection. Deep, extended spiritual thinking. That's what's going on here in the whole community. That's very rare in our day. We're used to sound bites. We're used to quick consumption of facts. But it's as though they couldn't get their mind off of it. Look what God is doing. They reflected. They talked. They were in awe of the work of God. And it left them to ask, if all of this is going on, if all of this is true, what will this child be? It was obvious to to all of the people that something amazing was coming. But Luke makes clear that the ultimate focus isn't on John. The focus is not on John at all, in fact. The focus is primarily on the Lord. Look again at verse uh, 66. It says, For the hand of the Lord was with him. You see, it seems that so much of the story is mainly about Zacharias and Elizabeth and their son, John. And it is, but the bigger story is so much more important. The story, Luke points out, is about God. God is the main character in the story, as is the case with the entire Bible. It is the hand of the Lord that Luke wants us to see here. It is the hand of the Lord upon his messenger, upon his servant. So what does that mean exactly? The hand of the Lord was on John to sanctify and renew his heart, to teach him, to make him fit for his prophetic work, preparing the way for the Messiah. The hand of the Lord encouraged John. See, later on, we're going to see many people against John, and in the end, even John being beheaded in prison. 
Now remember, the Holy Spirit filled John when he was still in Elizabeth's womb. So there's no doubt that the grace of God was evident in John's early life. The hand of the Lord was with him from the very beginning. And I want to point something out to us in this this instance that we read in the Bible of the hand of the Lord. The fact that this is about God, and not about Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, it tells me that we ought to pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon our children. You see, there's nothing more special about John as a man than me or you or any of our children because it wasn't about who John was or what John did. It's about what God is and what God is doing through John. So no doubt John was a wonderful, righteous man. He was incredible in so many ways, but it wasn't because of John. It's because of God. And so we ought to be praying regularly that the hand of the Lord in the same way would be upon our children. But because, because, of what God, because what God was in the day of John, God still is today. He is right now. What he did for the son of Zechariah, he can do for our sons and our daughters. Now, obviously, our children won't be prophets that lay the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. But that's not the point. The point is that we are seeking the hand of God to be on our children, and we must be diligent to seek that. We must pray that they will be messengers of the great gospel of Christ, that they will be ambassadors of Christ as well. So now all of this has set the stage in our text for what is called the Benedictus. It is from Zechariah. It is a prophecy. The Benedictus means blessed. It refers to the opening line of Zechariah's prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Let's read, beginning in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. There's a lot here. We're going to focus only on three, uh, three divisions here in 
the Benedictus. Each one of them relates to the covenants that God has made with his people. Notice in verse 69, he speaks of David. We're going to look at the Davidic covenant. In verse 73, he refers to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And in verse 77, we see a reference to the forgiveness of sins, which is the new covenant that we read of in Jeremiah 31. So, in one regard, Luke is showing us that the coming of the Messiah is a sure sign that the covenant promises of God will be fulfilled They will be complete in Christ. But as we will see, Luke is also pointing to us the saving nature of God as revealed in each of these three covenants. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the Abrahamic promise, and the new covenant promise. And most of Zechariah's prophecy is not focused on his son, but rather on the salvation that the Messiah would bring. In all of the verses, there's only one where he makes brief reference to his own son, and even that is related to God's salvation of men. So the Benedictus is about what is coming in Jesus, what his coming means, and particularly in relation to God's fulfillment of what he has promised. So first, let's consider the Davidic covenant. We see this in verses 68 through 71. And to point out in verse 69, he refers to the fact that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Horn of salvation. Now, this is not John the Baptist. This is Jesus. And it's very easy to know that because John was not of the household of David. Jesus is. Jesus is the horn of salvation. Well, what in the world is that? What is a horn of salvation? Well, the horn is a reference to the horn of an ox. It's a sign of strength. It's a means of victory. It's a powerful weapon. If you've never seen an ox, maybe you've been able to see a Texas longhorn. That's what I, when I think of this, I think of, I've been up close to those magnificent beasts. They're humongous. Their horns are tremendous. And they are a bit frightening. <laughs> this is what is being portrayed. It's power. It's strength. It's a weapon. We get a picture of it in Psalm 92.9. It says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Why? Because of the horn of salvation. Because of this, this power, this strength displayed in you. Jesus is the horn of salvation because he has incredible power. And it is to be feared by all his enemies. He is a weapon to be used to rescue God's people. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Psalm 89 is a good summary of the covenant that God made with David in this regard. So here we can see what exactly Zechariah is saying about Jesus. Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. We're going to tap into your Old Testament knowledge a bit here this morning. We need to bring out some specific elements of these covenants. We know from the Bible that after God delivered David from Saul, he brought him to his throne. He gave him victory and he gave him rest. And David expressed to Nathan his concern to build a house for God. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So God responds to David's concerns with his commitment to build a house for David. David's house is his posterity, his descendants. God's house is his place of special presence. So God promised David a house to be built that would be a blessing to David and all of his descendants. David's house comes together with God's house in one place, namely in Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 7:16 God says, "Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." We know he wasn't referring to the fact that David would go on forever. We recognize what's going on here. Remember when the angel Gabriel met with Mary, he saw we saw this just a few weeks ago, Luke one thirty one through thirty three. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So David's ultimate heir is the Messiah who rules on David's throne. He is the recipient of the pledge of the permanent rule of God. And we too are recipients of the great blessing of God's covenant with David. It gives us peace. It gives us stability. It gives us security. Because Jesus is the forever king and has taken his seat on the throne forever, we have great peace. We are under the reign of the prince of peace. Zechariah points to the peace that comes to those within the family of God. When he sings in verse 68, he has visited and redeemed his people. What great peace comes from our redemption. Our being delivered... We were enemies of God and we are made friends of God through Jesus Christ. What great peace. And through the reign of Jesus, God blesses us in that way. We also have, we have security. We've already looked at that in verse 71. We are saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Most ultimately, by the horn of salvation, we are saved from being enemies of God. Our king is our protector. Jesus is also our stability. His kingdom endures forever. 
Every mention of the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament mentions this reality, that the reign of David's throne is forever. Jesus is the forever king, the horn of salvation. He cannot be destroyed. And praise be to God, that offers us great stability forever and ever. Zechariah also mentions what we know to be the Abrahamic covenant in verses 72 through 75. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram at the age of 75, he promises, remember at that point, Abram had no children. He promises to make of him a great nation and to give him a great name. He promises to befriend him, to defend him, to curse his enemies, and to bless his friends. And according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, Abraham and his descendants would be the means of a global spiritual blessing. It is through Abraham's seed that the gospel would be preached to all nations. So Abram embraces the promise in faith. He believes God. It is counted to him as righteousness, and it regulates his life. So God makes this covenant with his righteous servant, Abraham, who walks with him by faith, and he calls him out of the darkness. He calls him out of idolatry, and he causes him to work and walk with him. So How has God, according to verse 72, shown the mercy promised to our fathers? It is God's promise of spiritual blessing through the gospel by the means of the Messiah as promised in God's covenant with Abraham. The blessing is global. We, we see it all through the New Testament. It's for every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. It is the promise that eventually Jesus and all who are, who are his will be divine heirs of the entire world. It's a great promise. So you see, once again, as we just saw with the Davidic covenant, we see the same thing being focused on here in Zechariah's song with regards to the Abrahamic covenant. Not John the Baptist, but Jesus. Jesus will be the fulfillment of God's promise. And as a result of God's fulfillment of this promise, we see in verse 73 that something is granted to us. What is it? This is very important. Look in verse 74. The oath... Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, what? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. How do we do that? How does this happen? It is by the reconciling work of God. That we are no longer enemies of God. Our hearts have been changed. We have been made to be new creations in Christ. And we walk in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. 
And we cannot do this apart from the saving grace of God. Our hearts must be changed. We must be justified. We need to be made right before God before we will ever walk in fear of the Lord, before we will ever walk in obedience to God. Our justification must come before our sanctification. We must be made able to walk in obedience because we cannot do it on our own. And if you try, you will fail. You will fail time and time again. So again, we see the covenant work of God in sending Jesus the Messiah who would secure the salvation of his people, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Now, before we look at the new covenant, I want you to notice in verse 76, this is the only place in his entire song that Zechariah makes mention of his new son, John. But even in doing so, he's pointing to Jesus. Read verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this is exactly what John the Baptist does, isn't it? We'll look at this in a few weeks. But John is faithful in his calling. He is faithful to what God has sent him to do. And he prepares the way for Jesus. He lays the groundwork for Jesus to come and to fulfill the new covenant. He is God's messenger. It is what he was born to do. And in many ways, it's what you and I are made Christians, we are born again to do, to be messengers, to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is made possible because of the new covenant. The new covenant. We see this in verses 77 through 79. Now, the new covenant is outlined for us in Jeremiah 31. We read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the new covenant. Again, it's very tightly woven with the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. The foundational promise here is exactly what we read in verse 77. It is the promise of the gospel word that will come in the saving power of the Holy Spirit. What do you suppose is meant by verse 77? By Jesus giving knowledge of salvation to his people. Is this simply knowing what salvation is? Well, no. Before, Before we can really grasp what salvation is, we must grasp the reality of why it's even needed in the first place. We must have a grasp of the law of God. And this is a major element within the new covenant, that God is going to write his law on the hearts of his people. We know from Romans 1 that all men everywhere have the law of God written on their conscience, but in unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, they reject the law. 
But in the new covenant, God has promised to write his law on our hearts so it is made fresh, it is made new, it is vibrant. And it does two very important things for us. First, it reminds us of the perfect standard of God that we are unable to fulfill and that we need to be fulfilled for us. This reveals our need of the gospel. And once we are redeemed, the law then functions in the heart of a Christian for our sanctification, to light the path for our obedience, to show us the way of a life that is lived pleasing to God. So the knowledge of salvation is the full picture. One must need to know that they have a great need for a Savior, thus showing their need for God's law. This is how John prepares the way for Jesus, isn't it? When John shows up on the scene as a prophet, what is his constant refrain? What is he saying over and over again? Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Well, John, repent of what? So you see, knowledge of God's law is very important. Sin is lawlessness, the Bible tells us. So if one is to repent of their sin, they must know what their sin is, namely a transgression of God's law. So John called on the people to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This lays the foundation for the work of God in the new covenant. This knowledge of salvation is an intimate knowing of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the work of God to make known to us our sin, to bring us to repentance and to rescue us from the wrath of God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is also a knowledge of, a working out of our obedience to the Lord in our sanctification. We do that with thankful hearts, with grateful and willing hearts, knowing that our salvation is not dependent upon our obedience to God, but our salvation creates a desire. It creates within us a grace-driven effort to live lives of obedience to God. Zechariah explains all of this to us further in verses 78 and 79 because of the tender mercy of our God. I love, I love how he says that. The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Why has God done it? What is God's motivation? His tender mercy. The tender mercy of God gives us Jesus. The tender mercy of God brings us from the darkness and the shadow of death into the glorious, marvelous light. The tender mercy of God guides our feet in the way of peace. So here's the beauty of all that Zechariah has given to us in the Benedictus. He paints a beautiful picture to show us that this is a great work of God that he has been working out throughout the ages. Jesus coming into the world to save sinners is not plan B. It's not something that he came up with at the spur of a moment. It's something that was God's plan all along. 
It's the main focus of the scriptures. It's the primary element in each of the covenants. It is what Zechariah is pointing us to. Now think how wonderful this is for all who were hearing Zechariah's song. A people repressed by their government, a people who have felt in the darkness for so many years because of God's silence. Now all of the sudden they're reminded of God's covenant faithfulness and they are people who, if they are paying attention, can see that all that God has promised is about to come to fruition and they get a front row seat to it all. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to regularly remind ourselves of the covenant faithfulness of God. It creates a great hope. It creates a great assurance within us. And it reminds us of God's causing us to persevere as his saints, as his children. John Calvin says, all our progress and perseverance are from God. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. If this is true, if this from God's word is true, then here's the good news. When we are in Christ Jesus, we are his forever. He is 100% irrevocably for us. Our relationship with Christ is indissoluble because He keeps covenant. He will not break it. And His covenant promises come to fruition. And so the implications here are, are huge. Please don't leave here this morning thinking, well, I don't know how any of that really applied to my life. We have to see here God has shown us throughout all time that he will keep his covenant promise. We see that example laid out for us right here in Zechariah's words. So when we're suffering, when our life seems like it's at an all-time low and everything around us has crumbled, when the doctor tells us we have three months to live, there's going to be painful we have the assurance that even though right there, at that moment in time, we don't understand how it's true and how it's going to turn out, but Romans 8.28 is true. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. In the midst of our greatest spiritual trials, we can all say, it is well with my soul. How? Why? Why is it well? How can it be well? Because it doesn't seem well right now. You're right. Maybe it doesn't seem well right now, but it is because you are in Christ Jesus. You are his, and that means that this trial that you are enduring is not in vain. So suffer well, because God has ordained this for your good. And I know that's true, because God is a covenant-keeping God, and he has promised this to be so. That gives us great hope. That is our foundation of stability. The covenant promises of God is our sure foundation. 
This is just one of the many realities that can be drawn from Zechariah's outline of the great covenants of God. Because God keeps covenant, he has proven himself time and time again to be faithful. So as Christians, we can endure all trials and know that they are for God's glory. And he will keep us faithful through them all. And he will certainly obtain the greatest inheritance for us. And it awaits us because of Christ's faithfulness on our behalf. So in our salvation, God blesses us with assurance. He preserves us to the very end. And whether we want to admit it or not, we all struggle to overcome the world, and we all struggle to enjoy the glorious freedoms that we have in Jesus. And many of those struggles exist because we don't understand fully that just as our salvation is a gift from God, so is our perseverance. Do not root your hope and your assurance in your ever-changing emotions. Root your hope and your assurance in the never-changing, always true covenant promises of God. God always is and always will be intimately involved in every single moment of your life and will keep you to the end because he is faithful. It's all over these passages. God is faithful. I think the words from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs are a very fitting summary of all that we've considered this morning. He writes, Here we see the infinite love of God, that He has been pleased to think of us, poor creatures, from everlasting, and make it His work to reconcile us to Himself. And here is the foundation of the sweetness and comfort of all the mercies of God to those who are reconciled to Him. They are the fruits of the eternal love of God for us. Isn't that wonderful? Christ Jesus has come into the world by the tender mercy of our God to give us a knowledge of of salvation and forgiveness of our sins. If this morning Jesus is not your hope and your salvation, if you're not resting in Christ and banking all that you are on all that He is, the call from God for you is to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Counting on Jesus for your right standing before God, not your own. And when you do, you will inherit the eternal promises of God for your salvation. He will keep you to the end. Brothers and sisters, our God is faithful. He is full of tender mercy. And our relationship with Him is indissoluble. He has made the way of salvation known. And by His grace and for His glory, He has granted to all of us the riches that lie therein. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, O oh God, that you saw fit from everlasting to lay the foundation to give us the great promises that Christ would come 
That Christ would be our salvation. Christ would be our redeemer. Christ would be our hope. Thank you, O God, that you have made Gentile people like us to be a part of the family of God. Thank you for the great work you've done through the saints from the beginning of our time. That the groundwork was laid. That Christ came. That Christ lived a perfect life in fulfillment of your law and died a sinner's death on our behalf, was buried and raised from the dead. That we can be assured of the resurrection from the dead. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to keep covenant from generation to generation. Thank you, Lord, that when we are faithless, you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, that when we look to your word and we see what obedience is and yet we fall far short, that you are so much more faithful than we could ever imagine to be. And thank you, God, that our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but is dependent upon the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, who is faithful from everlasting to everlasting. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good and gracious reminder of your tender mercy this morning. Thank you for the reminder that we can trust in you because you are a sure, unmovable foundation for your glory and for our joy. Thank you, O Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.